Hi, this is Gary Sheffer, and here in the crux for another week with my friend Mike Fernandez. How are you doing, Mike? Terrific, especially that uh, the Yankees are still in it. We'll see where they are when the show actually airs. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I can't. I think even, I have I, less hair and, and fewer nails on my on my hands. So. Uh, well, the play, baseball playoffs, which we always sort of tease about here, have been just full of surprises. The best teams are most of them are out. I just hope the Yankees aren't one of them after after Game Five. So we've, we're really happy today about other things, and one of those is that Frank Shaw, the head of communications at Microsoft is here with us. Many of you know Frank. He's the corporate vice president of communications uh, for Microsoft, which is the fourth most profitable company in the Fortune 500. And of course, whose products many of us interact with every day. What you may not know about Frank is that he is a duck, meaning he earned a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Oregon and a former U.S. Marine. Frank's been at Microsoft since 2009, and today leads a team that's got a very wide remit, uh, obviously managing Microsoft's communications strategies worldwide. But his charter also includes establishing the vision and implementation of best practices for company-wide storytelling, product PR, media and analyst relations, executive communications, employee communications, global agency management, and military affairs. We're going to talk to Frank about how disinformation and media fragmentation affect communication strategy. We'll also unpack Microsoft's recent study of the hybrid workplace, which I found very interesting, as well as see if we can get Frank to say anything on Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Frank is widely respected and well-known. He has more than 30,000 Twitter followers and has an excellent LinkedIn series, hashtag calm conversations, which we'll also ask him about. Welcome to the crux, Frank. Welcome to the crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. It's great, uh, great to be here. So as I said, you earned a degree in journalism from the University of Oregon and then served in the Marine Corps, graduated from the Department of Defense Information School and ran a base newspaper. How does that start to your career as a journalist and a Marine inform your communication style and your leadership style? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I was really pretty fortunate because, you know, I got a degree in journalism, I went off and I joined the Marines, and I got a chance to be a public affairs officer, which is essentially the communications officer for the military. And I worked at the base as a staff officer uh, um, there at Camp Lejeune, which in a lot of ways was great experience for what it's like to be a counselor and advisor in, in the communications realm. 
just broadly speaking, because you know, you're dealing with super complicated issues, people with uh, strongly held uh, opinions, sure. and often pretty complicated uh, situations. And you know, even um, as I look back at it, as a relatively young uh, professional, I got a chance to deal with some really interesting challenges. And you know, that set me up super well for later in my career as you know, you, you get big issues, you know, at least I'd walked through that a couple of times previously. You know, I've always thought that communications in the military, I've had some chance to talk to some people who who do it. I I think they're underrated. I think they do really well uh, on social media in, you know, attracting recruits and, and, and telling the story of what, what folks in the service do these days. I just think there's a lot to learn, more we could learn in the profession by taking a look at what's being done by, by the U.S. military. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that, you know, you, you mentioned the Department of Defense Information School, which is a really well, well-run establishment. And, you know, one of the things that they really stress is that you have to think about stakeholders. You know, when you're talking and at the end of the day, you know, you're representing the, uh, the citizens of the United States. And so you, act, you have to remember that. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And, you know, that sense of like, who are you working for? Who are you representing? Um, I think is just, it's always good to keep front and center. Yeah. Frank, that kind of underscores, you know, the fact that the expectations for CCOs are changing. Um, Many cases, the role is expanding. Um, Your own role expands into investor communications. Some carry on with ESG responsibilities, government relations, some corporate marketing. How would you describe what it means to be a communications leader today in a large enterprise like Microsoft? Well, I think, I think for everybody in communications, the world keeps getting more and more complicated. We're dealing with issues that we didn't have to deal with previously. I mean, I can look back eight years and I, you know, I could have talked to the, the previous Frank and said, hey, you know, nine years from now, do you think you're going to be dealing with geopolitical issues? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm working for a company that does technology. I don't think that's going to be my thing. But, but here we are. And uh, so that complexity of the world gets reflected into the work that we do. Yeah. And especially for anybody who is in a larger organization, communications is one of the functions that generally has a view left to right across what the company's doing. And that, that view, that perspective comes with responsibilities. And one of the responsibilities it, it comes with is that you have to be great at being able to see common elements across these things and where there are issues or challenges or opportunities, making sure that you are playing the role of getting the right people in the room to address them. And that's, you know, that is a privilege that, that comes with uh, the perspective that we're given. Yeah. To some degree, I mean, it's interesting. I, I believe you've got like your your annual meeting coming up in the not too distant future and probably your proxy rolling out. And I know last year you had more than your fair share of topics to deal with. And uh, and I just wonder, you know, has have things changed as we've seen kind of a proliferation of shareholder activism in your role in specific and then more, more generally? Well, I think... I think that these things come and go. Mm-hmm. You, last year, we saw a fair amount of shareholder resolutions. I think we'll have some again this year. One of the things that we always try to do is we look at not just 
the specifics of what people are asking or groups are asking, but sort of the overall thesis behind them. And then we ask ourselves the question, should we be doing something differently? Because this is all signal. You can always, you can approach these things one of two ways. It's just, this is just a distraction. Like, what are these people doing? Why are they bothering us? Or you can say, wow, yeah. Or yeah. is there a signal, is there signal or is noise? Yeah. Is there something that we have missed that we should be looking at? And if there is, take action on it. And so, you know, that's that's what we generally try to do in these situations. You have to step back a little bit, sort of remove your emotion from it as much as possible, and then say, like, what am I going to learn here? And then if we're going to learn something, what, are, what am I going to do about it? So switching gears a bit, you're an avid technologist. Through the years, you've espoused the merits of technology, the internet, going digital. You once said that all of us will be able to tell our story more effectively in kind of the, the digital space. The, the reality is that all of us going digital has seemingly also created some inherent challenges for the very function you lead, I lead, as well as for society. Today, everyone's online, everyone has a voice and can reach thousands, if not millions, in a matter of seconds. As you think about the state of the media landscape, as a former journalist and a, a global communications leader, are, are you still as optimistic about uh, online storytelling? And what should communicators be thinking about as they move forward into this communication landscape that's clearly fraught with political polarization, conspiracy theorists, and paid influencers? Yeah, well, I think this gets to what we were talking about earlier. It's way more complicated. You know, it used, it used, it, yeah. you know there was a time where the media power was more concentrated, where you can plausibly like tell your story to the New York Times, the Washington Post, BBC, The Economist, and maybe uh, NPR and NBC and sort of check a box and say, hey, I've reached everybody, basically. You, you've, you've hit almost everybody who is consuming media. And that is so clearly not the case right now. There's so much fragmentation that, you know, trying to reach that scale becomes more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the, the key is it, it's an and situation. It's, it's no longer an or. Yes, you have to go out and find the media that reaches the audience or the influencers that reach the audience that you care about. But now you have to start with that audience. Uh, if you just start with everybody, and you, we've always had these conversations with people, whether you're at an agency talking to clients or you're at a company talking to stakeholders, and you say, well, who's the audience? And they say, everybody. And you're like, okay, well, everybody's not going to cut it anymore because even if you shower me with money, I'm not going to be able to reach everybody. So let's get a little more specific. And, and let's think about that audience. You know, it's business decision makers, it's uh, enterprise professionals, it's developers, it's, you know, early in career uh, technologists, you know, you pick an audience. And then from that, you can pick the influencers that, uh, that appeal to them, and then figure out how to tell your story through through those influencers. But you also have to think about how you're going to tell the story yourself. And you have to have the platforms in place to do that where people are listening. So, you know, we have a great news site uh, where we publish our own stories. Uh, we also have, you know, a TikTok channel and an Instagram channel and a Twitter feed. And, you know, we, we do some storytelling there because we know that that's an opportunity to reach audiences that uh, we might not hit through more traditional means. So you have to have, you have to have both. 
uh, as as you think about this. Mm -hmm. As you and your team team go down down that pathway, do you have uh, some goals you're trying to hit or some syncopation? Are you, I mean, how many days or how many or how many times a day are you posting to these various sites with stories? It depends on the channel. So you have you have more permission to be more frequent on Twitter because it's a little bit more ephemeral. I mean, you know, if, if you blink a couple times, the, the feed rolls through. You have a couple times a day, maybe on Instagram. A couple times a week is what we're, we're doing generally with a, a post of our own on TikTok. Mm -hmm. But what we, what we also know is that if you want to be relevant, you don't just post your own stuff. You have to participate. Yep. So that means that every day, you know, you've got a team that's looking at what's happening across different platforms. Like, where are we going to weigh in? Where's the, where are we going to put in a comment? Is there a meme we should uh, uh, pick up from, you know, one of our uh, handles? Uh, so like, it's an always on sort of situation, but careful because you don't just want to be screaming into the void. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Or, or doing something that lights a fire under a group of people that, unnecessarily right, right? I, the, most most things in social media that are are unforced errors right where you you've made a bad decision to jump into something that you probably should or, or you appear inauthentic right and that's uh, like you know we can make mistakes right and and but like when you appear inauthentic that's harder to recover from so that's that's where you have to have some focus Hey, before I ask you another question, I meant to ask you something at the beginning. What is it with the University of Oregon you, now in communicators in the tech industry? You got you at Microsoft. I got Corey DeBrowa at Alphabet Google, right? So they seem to be doing something. One of our rivals here at Boston University out at Oregon. Yeah, well, uh, it's a it's a great institution that's been doing good work for a number of years, and so there's a whole bunch of uh, ducks running around in relatively high-profile communications positions, and I, I couldn't be prouder. Juan Carlos Moyeda, who uh, runs the School of Journalism and Communications, is just doing a great job of thinking about like not just like what do we teach students now, but how do we teach them to learn about this field? Because you know all the things that you know I learned not all of them, but many of them have sort of like been overcome by events, as you say. And so the key is not just what you learn, but how you learn to learn. And I think they're doing a really good job yeah. with that. That's fantastic. And, and Juan Carlos is getting the IPR, Institute for Public Relations top, yes. top award this year. And he, he really deserves it. I'm, I'm, oh, a big, he's amazing. I'm a big fan. So by the way, you, you mentioned something about you can't, you know, there's not enough money in the world to go after everyone with uh, your storytelling. I always remember when I was at GE and I would talk every month to a hundred executives from around the world and about communications and, and their responsibilities in that, in that area. And the, our team from China would always ask me, how come we're so, you know, we're not well known in China. You know, we were B2B there, B2G really in China and why we didn't do more advertising and that kind of thing. And I, I would give them the same answer. There is not enough money in the world right, right. For, <laughs> for me to advertise our way to, to uh, general awareness in China. So uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The other thing you have to think about, too, for us or any company, right, is that 
on our good days, we'll touch more people through the product experience than pe- that people have. Yeah. And so it's not just my job to tell stories about the company and to create brand awareness, but like every engineer at the company that's working on something has to think about what, what am I going to do uh, to have like a magical experience for a customer somewhere that makes them smile, that makes them feel something. And of course, you know, we don't want them to feel anger. We want them to feel joy or excitement or something like that. So how do you, how do you do that? And that's a conversation we have internally that Chris Cap, our uh, chief marketing officer has with our engineering team on a regular basis. We need help. Like we want to drive brand value. We need help. Like here are the things that we need from you. Exactly right. And that was, that was the, forgive the, the phrase, the crux of what I would talk to these folks about every, every month at our Crotonville facility for GE is like, you're on the communications team too. That's right. Right. So now we're going to ask you, Frank, a little dicier, maybe question about China. But again, it's something you, you just said earlier about thinking about geopolitical risk and, and something you maybe wouldn't have anticipated a while back. In 2021, you guys pulled LinkedIn, uh, the LinkedIn platform, your LinkedIn platform out of China after facing some increased content restrictions from the government. What, what role, Frank, did you and your team play in that discussion? And how, how is the company thinking about China today? Yeah, I mean, China, let, let me ask, I'll answer this question sort of in chunks. Um, okay. So, like, first off, like, the like the geopolitics, geopolitics of the world is certainly more complicated. And it has put stress on some of the big multinational companies, especially over the last couple of years, because multinationals almost by definition are looking for uh, sort of a global maxima. Right. You know, what can you do that is the best everywhere around the world? And in a time of what feels like increasing nationalism, there are fewer governmental governments that espouse that. And there used to be more. Right. Where people would say, hey, you know, globalism is generally good for everybody Mm -hmm. overall over time. And so we should pursue that with vigor. And then as you become more nationalistic, you say, no, it's like, maybe that's not such a great idea for me right now. And that has put any company that operates in, in multiple regions under, under some stress. And I think that, you know, we are certainly, we have certainly felt that uh, over, over time. And China has always been a complicated market. Uh, Gary, as, as you know, uh, like there's, there's been challenges of, of working there. For a number of years, but there's also great opportunities. Yes, you know, phenomenal talent um, in China, um, and if we can figure out how to uh, architect our products right, you can have some real, uh, real mm-hmm. benefit. In the case of LinkedIn, uh, the decision around LinkedIn, you know, the communication team was involved in the in the decision, and it was mostly along the lines of making sure that we were prepared and that we were as thoughtful um, as possible. We still have a, 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 a product in LinkedIn. It's, it, it's, it's a job board, essentially, mm-hmm. as opposed to the social uh, media platform, because what we discovered in China is that what people were using it for was mm-hmm. more on the job side Interesting. than on the, uh, the social side. Uh, so that's how we ended up uh, pursuing it. That's got to be a, a bit of a challenge. I mean, all countries are in the process of regulating companies like yours differently. I saw some of that 
particularly when I was uh, operating as the CCO for Cargill. And it's it's got to be a challenge, too, in that when people think about technology companies or software companies up towards that top of the list is, is Microsoft. So you're almost, on one hand, a, a an automatic leader in people's eyes, but on the other hand, you're also somewhat of a target. Yeah, I think, you know, the uh, as soon as a category becomes defined as big, it's a challenge. So, you know, big tobacco, yeah. big finance, yeah. big pharma, nobody feels great about any of those Ab- things. Absolutely. <laughs> and so when all of a sudden there was this technology thing, the big tech, yeah. right? You sort of, you knew you were in for some bruising. The difference, the difference for us in the, in the technology space is that, like, if you think about big finance or, you know, you know, big tobacco, everybody has the same business model. And so a regulator can look at that and say, I'm going to regulate this industry. And mm-hmm. so because there, there's this artificial category called big tech, it's easy for regulators to go like, I'm going to regulate big tech or I want to regulate big tech. And the reality is of the companies that are in the space, they have wildly different business models. Yeah. Uh, and so the only sort of common thread through them is there is a technology element, but it's not a business uh similarity and so when you start digging into it at a regulatory it becomes harder and you know you see that play out as as different institutions look at this and say really i think what we want to do is we want to we want to take a look at um you know uh, gatekeepers or advertising supported companies or social media companies and then all of a sudden like we may be in or we may be out of that list but that that next level of granularity is is important right now, I would imagine part of the challenge becomes is, you know, over the 47 years or so, there have been lots of acquisitions. Gary mentioned the acquisition of Activision Blizzard, which is a, a $68 billion deal with a gaming company. Uh, I, I realize Microsoft also is has been in the gaming business. And as you work on the internal side of these large business integrations, how do you and your team think about blending what are really two very different corporate cultures? Yeah, Activision is a super interesting one for a couple of points. There's a cultural point that you just talked about, and there's also just the, uh, you know, the interesting challenge of getting through regulatory approval on something like this. Yeah. And it touches on that theme we just uh, started with, because in a world where you just looked at the facts. Right. You would say, wow, the number five or six player in gaming, that's Microsoft, depending on how you count it, um, is making an acquisition that will make it the number three or four mm-hmm. player. Most regulators would go like, huh, not that interesting. <laughs> but because we're in a world where... We, we, but we don't, live in, we don't live in a logical world. That's right. Right. So we live in a world where people say, well, Microsoft is, is buying this company, and so we're going to take a lot of scrutiny with it. So we have to do a really good job of talking to regulators and languages in the language that that they're asking for around what we're doing, why we're doing it, and why it will be net helpful for gamers Mm -hmm. and it will add competition to the market. So like we have to do that. And it's a little bit of an uphill battle, but, you know, we feel relatively confident. Then the second piece is like, how do you think about merging or combining or thinking through different cultures? And one of the things we've had some practice with over the last set of years is in acquiring companies and then making decisions about like how how they operate. You know, like 
we uh, the first purchase that Satya made, first acquisition was Minecraft, right? Minecraft Studio still has its own its own sense and sensibility, its culture, how right. it how it works with its audience, and they do a great job with that. And it's not like we tried to graft the existing Microsoft culture and just like you know sit it on top of that because that's not always effective. You know, LinkedIn continues to operate um, as a, as as LinkedIn. It has its own culture. It behaves it behaves in the way it behaves. There's core values that we share and that we make sure that. Um, are common across all of them. And so that's what we, you try to look at is uh, like, what are the core things that are just absolutely central that, that need to go everywhere? And then how do you allow different aspects of the culture to thrive in a way that allows them to be successful? Mm-hmm. And so there's, there'll be work to do there. Uh, you know, we've got a little ways to go before we start that since we're still a little ways out from closing that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine from a regulatory standpoint, some of their questions go to uh, some concern and questions around what happens with interoperability between different types of, uh, of programs, different types of systems. And, and my other guess is that, you know, some of this is a, a, a question of, as you stated well at the, at the beginning of, of my question is, you know, what's the real benefit to to the consumer audience? And does it does it increase competition? You know, right. like, and, 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 you know, in this case, there's there's a, some market leaders who would prefer not to have more competition, which is that's the way the world works. Like nobody wants more competition. Um, yeah. And so they're saying this is a, this is bad. And, yeah. you know, we're saying I think it's probably going to be good for gamers. And we'll see how we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about uh, competition, I've listened to your LinkedIn series called Hashtag Comms Conversations in conversations with people like uh, Nigel Powell, the CCO at Nike and former BBC News Tech correspondent Roy Allen Jones. You've unpacked what it means to thrive as a communicator and how building and rebuilding trust is essential what do you hope to accomplish uh, through this series? One of the things that um, I noticed is that I get a chance to have conversations with really interesting people in the course of my job, and they're great at their jobs. I mean, they're great communicators in whatever fashion uh, that is. And, you know, like, I'm certainly better for that. I'm better because I get to hear from these people. And then I try to tell, like, share that with the team at Microsoft. But the LinkedIn series was, is just an attempt to continue that, right? You know, to make sure that everybody's in communications has a sense of like, how did these people get there? Because there's always a little bit of that. How did you get into this job? And then what have you learned um, along, along the way that might be helpful for, for somebody else? So it's just a chance of taking some of these conversations that we're already having. I think, you know, many people already have these conversations and moving them out into public mm-hmm. in a way that hopefully is at least a little bit interesting and beneficial to people. Mike, Mike, should we consider Frank, though, to be a competitor? Why are <laughs> I was teasing. I was teasing. I don't think so. I've seen my numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I, got a way, I got a ways to go. I'm a micro influencer right now. Well, I tell you what you said about, you know, how did I get here, those are such great, I deal with students every day, and those are such great conversations for students to listen to, and I highly recommend them to my students. Yeah, and, and everybody looks at anybody who's been successful and think it was ordained, 
but of course we've all sort of stumbled, stumbled and fallen and sort of skidded. How did I come in this door? In some very odd and Wait. Yeah, that's exactly right. Why am I here? Now, now, one thing I want to ask you about, simply because I'm intrigued, and I know lots of companies, including the one I work for, have had deep conversations about um, what's happening with flex work and hybrid work options. Most companies have provided that to their employees, but it seems, and I don't know if it's generational or not, but there's this broad sense that baby boomers have a tendency to think if people aren't at their computer inside the office, then we must not, uh, if they're not there, we shouldn't be, we're probably not very productive. And you did a survey, Microsoft did a survey, included 20,000 people, 11 countries, analyzes all kinds of productivity signals over Microsoft 365, along with LinkedIn labor trends and Glint people science findings, one of the disparities highlighted is this differing perception of workplace productivity by employees and leaders. 87% of employees say they are as productive working from home, yet only 12% of leaders say they believe this to be true. That's a huge gap. Care to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the Work Trends Index is something that we've done for a couple of years now that I think has been really helpful, both from um, a storytelling standpoint and an insight standpoint for our uh, teams at Microsoft and our customers, because it tries to help put into context a little bit what's happening. You know, you have all the signal we get from people who are using our products and deploying our products. And then, you know, we have the the survey we did that says, well, why, what are they, what are they feeling? Mm -hmm. And one of the first times we did it after the pandemic had started, you know, we talked about uh, uh, this thing called the hybrid paradox, where half of the people wanted to spend more time in the office and half of the people wanted to spend less time in the office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? You know, like they, some people missed the connection. And, and so like, as a manager, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Right? It's a, it's a real challenge. How do you create that set of connections? And then we had some like ideas and recommendations. And this one sort of continued that, which is the sense of like this disconnect between how people feel, mm-hmm. right? I'm working super hard and I'm really productive versus in some cases like, hey, I'm not sure because I can't see you. Yeah. Um, and so how do you how do you square that? And, and, and our job then is to go, first of all, as soon as you put it on the table and you talk about it, it's easier to have the conversation. So you really want people to be having that conversation at their companies. Um, whatever they are, right? Because there's insight that will come from that. And the second piece is that, you know, what is it, what is the common element there, right? So there's this common element sometimes where where some people are saying, I want people to be back in the office together more. And then why would they go to the office? Mm -hmm. And the key insight is that people don't come to the office for donuts or coffee or desks or anything like that. They come for people. (laughs) Right. And so if you're not creating a rhythm that has people working together in, you know, like getting that sense of connection, you'll just get rejected when you like, you know, sketch out the demand that says you have to be here four days a week or three days a week. Right. Managers have to do some work, creating an environment that people feel that sense of connection when they're there. And that's really valuable. And it can be hard to do. It means you have to think about your workspaces differently. You think a little bit about you know the work you're going to do that day differently. 
but we're all on we're all on a journey uh and you know having yeah. some flexibility uh and patience i think will be key thank you for tuning in to this episode of the crux on the crux we discuss the intersection of communications business and society follow us at the crux on facebook and twitter you can also find our episodes on soundcloud spotify itunes and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, I also wonder, you know, if, if there wouldn't be, that it wouldn't be worthy to look at jobs that historically have been done remotely. I mean, a lot of reporters, a lot of the people who, who work for us have come from environments where they worked remotely over long periods of time. You know, you think about people in the government relations realm, they're not sitting in the office. They've got to go have conversations with regulators, political players, and so on. And so the it seems to me that part of this is turning the conversation around what does it mean to be productive? And are we talking inputs or are we talking outcome? Yeah, and if I just look in, if I look at my team over the last two years, 40% of my team is not in Redmond. Mm-hmm. So even if my boss came to me yet tomorrow and said, Frank, I need everybody back in the office. I'm like, well, which office am I going to have those other 40 people go exactly. to? I mean, they're in Atlanta, they're in New York, <laughs> they're in LA, they're in DC. You know, they're in Fort Lauderdale. I mean, you know, like I suppose they could go and sit by themselves in a Microsoft sales office somewhere. That doesn't seem smart. Right. And so, you know, like you have to look at, well, what are you trying to accomplish? And then the question is, as a leader, are you creating a sense of community and connection regardless of when and where people are? That's the most important thing to focus on. Well stated. You know, I I, I have not been in a corporate job for about five years now, I guess. And there's a lot of things about it I don't miss, but I do miss the people. Yeah. Seeing people and, and that, you know, seeing and seeing, having the opportunity to see smart people too, and to just talk to them about maybe something outside of what we do collectively at a company like GE. But I, I do miss that social sort of people part of it very much. Yeah, so, so do I. Now I'm in the office three or four days a week. But there are some times where when I get some of those drive-bys by some of my senior stakeholders who just stick their heads in and offer feedback uh, on how things are going. And I wonder, would I have gotten that feedback if I was not in the office? I might have avoided that particular round. Well, you know, the, the, the other thing, though, the pandemic has been very good, I'm assuming, to one of your products. We use it uh, very liberally, and that's Microsoft Teams. Yeah. And, you know, for most companies, it's, it's, it's kind of displaced Zoom. And I know that there's been lots of discussion around, you know, this is potentially a bigger platform for the future. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I think... Teams is absolutely a platform for Microsoft. So you think about our big platforms, you think about Windows, you think about Azure, and you think about Teams as three of the, the really uh, big ones. And uh, when you're a platform provider, you have to provide value on your own and you have to have room for other people to provide value as well. And so I think we've done a pretty good job with both of those things. And you know, over the last two years, the number of um, improvements that we've seen from teams based on 
customer demand has just been off the charts. That team, the engineering team and the um, cloud team has just been killing it in terms of really meeting that demand, especially early in the pandemic when, you know, everybody turns it on all at once and, you know, we just got crushed uh, under the demand. Uh, and, you know, people were sleeping in data centers uh, to make sure that they could, uh, you know, install the new uh, servers as they came in um, and, and keep things up and running. Frank, I want to talk to you about uh, some of the conversations I have with students here at Boston University. And, and we talk about their careers a lot, particularly uh, those about to graduate or the graduate students. And they want to know what it would take to work at a company like Microsoft or Google or Alphabet, um, et cetera. And it seems to me they're a little intimidated by working for those companies. And not in this sense that they don't, they're very active on social media, but they, they seem intimidated by the word tech and what they need to know to work at a company like Microsoft, what would you say to them to sort of help demystify working in tech? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it it's a good it's a good line of thinking. Um, when I think about what makes a great communicator, right? There's a couple things. You know, one is you have to really understand the elements of a story, uh, regardless of what that story is. You have to be able to take in a bunch of information and synthesize it in a way that makes sense and then simplify it so that other people can understand it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the more uh, technical you are, the harder it can be to abstract information out, right? When you're really good at something, when you really know something and then somebody asks you to explain it and you explain it and they just look at you and it's like, they didn't understand a word you said and you've just, you've just best explanation ever. And they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and. And so our job as communicators is to serve as a bridge sometimes between you know, the absolute experts yeah, and then yeah. being able to distill the information that they're giving us in a way that is understandable to other audiences. Yeah. And Frank, and yeah, so, I think some of it is. Yeah, those are learned yeah, skills. Yeah, the, yeah, it is skill. And, 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 and you've also spoken, I think, on another element that is, I think, key in this is, is, is you talk about that you have to be curious and interested in right. what's happening, that you need to fall in love a little bit with your topic, but that curiosity yeah. is, 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 is really at the heart of what we need from, from people in this function. Yeah, no, I think about, I, I, that's, that is exactly right. And it took me a while to sort of come to it. Like, what is the, like, how can you write, how can you see a story without falling in love with it? David Kirkpatrick, who wrote for uh, Fortune for a number of years and, and then Techonomy, he was great at this, and he he actually would he would do this explicitly on purpose. He would go in and he would he would like immerse himself in this topic, and he would just like love it, love it, love it. And then he would go off, and he would become skeptical, <laughs> right? But he he didn't feel like he could do he couldn't start with skepticism because then he wouldn't get the heart of the story. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was that was a great insight. And so anytime you start, you have to find something that you can fall in love with. And maybe it's the person behind it. Maybe it's the impact it'll have in the world. Maybe it's the advance in technology, right? You know, and if it's not there, find a way of creating it. Because if you don't have the emotion, it's just not, it's not going to work. And so like, as, as people who are curious, who want to explain things, you know, regardless of whether you, 
you know, understand the latest uh, set of technologies. You can describe quantum computing and large language models. You'll get there. You'll get there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that is so important. Someone said to me recently, I always wanted to be, the, <laughs> I, I wanted to know the least about the topic <laughs> that was being discussed in a room so I could ask the good questions. Now, obviously, you have to understand how business operates, but that sense, it does lead to a sense of curiosity. You ask the right questions in some cases. Uh, so I, I love that. This is a question I wish I'd been more curious about. I think Mike and I have done like 80 of these uh, Crux podcasts so far. And I wish I'd asked other folks this question. Your colleagues tell me you're a voracious reader. And so I'm interested. You create curiosity in in other ways by reading about things and discovering things you haven't really, you know, gotten into previously. What are you reading now? Well, so like I read, I tend to read a lot of news, you know, long form and short form. Yeah. So um, most of my reading is in in fiction. Um, I'm reading Stephen King's new book, uh, I think it's Fairy Tales. I got like two or three chapters into it and it was keeping me awake at night. And so I have to wait. I have to wait (laughs) until I can have an uninterrupted weekend and I can crush through the whole book because I can't be sitting awake and then knowing I have to come to to work uh, the next day. Um, there's a, a speculative fiction author, uh, S.A. Chakrabadi, who, who wrote a, a trilogy called The Rivers of yes, Grass yeah. um, that uh, is it was great. And so she's got a collection of short stories out called The River of Silver, which I'm reading. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's snippets from the main characters. Super interesting. So it's good to go revisit those people that I haven't heard from in the last couple of years. And then there's a couple of uh, memoirs that are coming out that I'm really excited to read. Uh, Margaret Sullivan's got a new one coming out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I, I think is going to be great. I've liked her previous uh, work before. And then uh, there is a, uh, a runner, Lauren Fleshman, who has a, a, a memoir coming out uh, as, uh, as well. Mm. Uh, you know, she, is, uh, she was a great runner. She's a fantastic writer and communicator. And I'm really excited to see what she has to say. You know, it's it's funny, the, the leaders I've known, many of them, if not most of them, are just really aggressive readers, uh, both of fiction and nonfiction. And and um, I, I just find that to be a really a, a door opener to a lot of things that uh, you haven't discovered previously in your life. And, and it leads to, it leads to, I, I re- always remember Jeff Immelt, the CEO of GE, he would ask me, hey, have you have you read that new book by the Wall Street Journal reporter on this business or that business? <laughs> I'm saying, when did you have time to read that book? Right. And he said, right. no, um, you know, he he sets aside times and other leaders I've seen. Mm-hmm. They protect mm-hmm. that time for reading because it's not only important personally, but also helps you professionally. Yeah. And, you know, you read to learn and then you read for for joy. Yes. And I think you have to you know, like I have to do both. I mean, like when I when you get lost in a book, there's just nothing better. Mm-hmm. There's nothing better. Yeah. Right. Well, and and I think what's so great too is because the job can be so full of current events and news and and and, and yeah, you can go and look at a historical perspective of some of that, but uh, the thought of spending time 
to pick up fiction and help that shape kind of the liberal mind, I think is, is, is a terrific idea. Well, Frank, thank you. I'm going to look up some of these books you've mentioned. And thank you so much for being uh, on the crux with Mike and with me. It's been really terrific. And I've loved some of the things you've mentioned about leadership. We've got to continue to emphasize that in what we do. You know, you have to be a leader inside the company. You have to lead your team. You have to be a leader outside the company. And uh, understanding that is so important. I think you've, you've expressed it well. Frank, thanks for being on being on the crux today. It's great. Fantastic conversation. Great way to kick off the week. Thank you for listening to The Crux. Our producer is Boston University student Anna Huynh. This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, or COM as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, COM is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash com.